Hi everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Mental Health Pod. This week, I was lucky enough to talk to Dr. Chuck Raison of Wisconsin-Madison University in the USA. Chuck's an internationally recognized psychiatrist who researches novel mechanisms involved in the development and treatment of major depression and other stress-related emotional and physical conditions. As well as this work, he examines the physical and behavioral aspects of compassion training. His research is absolutely fascinating and I urge you to check it out further. In the meantime, give this episode a listen, and as usual, if you enjoy it, give us a rating on iTunes and share it around your friends. So joining me today is Dr. Chuck Raisin, um, who works at uh, Wisconsin-Madison University. Um, Thanks for joining us, Chuck. Sure, happy to be here. Um, to start with, can you give us like a brief background on who you are, what you do, um, your relationship to both personally and professionally to mental health? Sure. Um, well, I am a psychiatrist, so um, that means I'm an MD, a doctor uh, who specializes in the treatment of, of mental illness. Um, my big interest over the years has been uh, depression. I started life actually primarily as a clinician, but about about 20 years ago, I became very interested in uh, research and over the last 20 years have developed a career that has a couple of elements in it. Uh, one element is looking at how the brain and the body interact to produce either emotional well-being or uh, you know, depression, anxiety. Um, focused a lot on the the immune system and the brain. Um, But I've also had an interest in trying to develop ways to enhance our treatment of depression. Uh, These things are not totally disconnected, but I've done a fair amount of work looking at meditative interventions to, to enhance stress resilience. And more recently, have looked at a number of, or several, um, novel sort of interventions for depression that, that we have been pioneering. Um, so that's really who I am professionally. Um, I, like many psychiatrists, I've struggled with some depression in my own life, which of course there's nothing like personal experience to make you uh, fascinated and deep. Absolutely. Isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so what, what are these kind of innovative, innovative treatments? Are they moving away from antidepressants? So I've been on um, a drug called seritaline for about 16, sure. 16 months now. Um, but one of the big things I've found helpful alongside it, and actually before I started taking it, was um, specifically mindfulness meditation. Um, so I was wondering what kind of, what kind of in, in um, what kind of treatments are you looking into? Right. How do I think about what I'm doing? Yeah. Well, so you know, it's odd. I, I'm a, I, and this fits my temperament. I'm a nostalgic person by nature. Okay. And in fact, most of the sort of, quote, innovative uh, treatments that I've been examining are not new. They're actually old. I sometimes yeah. think of myself as the guy that refurbishes uh, things. Um, I am very interested in what I've come to call ancient practices. Mindfulness would certainly be an example of that. But I've begun to realize as a result of the work that I've done over the years um, that if you if you look at most cases of depression, now, you know, depression is a classic example of, of sort of what a person is 
meeting what the environment gives them, right? So we know that, that although depression is not primarily a genetic disorder, and it's pretty clear that we're never going to find one or two genes that explain why depression exists, um, it has a genetic component, and some people some people require massive losses from the environment to become depressed. Other people are much more sensitive, uh, and more minor stresses and upsets uh, induce depression. Of course, the world is a very hard place to live in, and so obviously the, the, the more vulnerable you are to the, the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, the more likely you are to be depressed. But um, in general, if you look at humans, uh, all, all across the vulnerability sort of scale, people all around the world, and, and this is I think probably true, this reaches way back into probably human evolution, people tend to become depressed when they experience adversities in their lives. Yeah. That, that signal to them that from an evolutionary point of view, they're not doing very well. So, you know, the humans, successful humans are, are loved by other people, they, they're admired by other people, they're healthy, they have agency in their life, meaning that they can control to some degree at least what happens to them. And if you get those sort of signals from the environment, uh, you tend to feel pretty good, and if you get the opposite type of signal, so if you, if your if your inflammatory system gets activated, which is the sine qua non of being sick, those chemicals make your brain feel depressed. If you lose people that you that you rely upon to feel good about yourself in life, you feel depressed. If you're shamed, if you lose status, if you feel like you're trapped in a situation that's horrible that you can't escape, these these are the big depressogenic things for human beings. Um, so I began to realize over the years that um, that one way to treat depression would be to find ways to tap into what I call these sort of signaling pathways. Are, are, there, are there ways that you can, can help people get signals from their environment um, or perceive signals that make them feel good? Mm. Um, and it's interesting, what I realized was that, that in fact, a number of very, very ancient modalities that humans hit upon, usually for spiritual purposes or, or, or for healing, um, are remarkably effective in this regard, right? Humans discovered, um, humans discovered the most powerful ways to induce emotional well-being um, through an intervention a long time ago. And they discovered them because they were so powerful that, that they were easy to recognize, right? So there's a lot of things that humans have done across long periods of history that um, that fit this bill, and I've started studying several of them. And it's a long, complex story for how I came to do this. Yeah. Actually, every grew out of my work with the immune system. But let me give you an example. Um, so if you look uh, at cultures around the world, it is quite remarkable how frequently traditional cultures have used heat, hyperthermia. Okay. Um, as an intervention, right? So think about all the sweat lodges um, that existed in Native North America, and there were many, many of them yeah. in Asia, right? And the Roman baths and all this. Well, it turns out that if you subject human beings to uh, intense heat for a time-limited period, uh, it induces changes in the brain and the immune system that produce emotional well-being. Um, and so we um, we actually did a very rigorous study with a very expensive machine, hypothermia machine, where we took depressed people who were not on any medications, and we, uh, as I would say, we kind of cooked them. We put them in a the machine for a couple hours, raised their body temperature, um, not to a dangerous level, but, but pretty darn hot, 
and showed that if you do that once, we produced uh, an antidepressant response that lasted for six weeks wow. compared to putting people in the box with just a little feed, right? So why does heat work? Well, it turns out that there are receptors in the skin that are activated by heat, and when they are activated, they run up to the brain, sort of like a deep brain stimulator, and stimulate these very, at least in animals, when you look at animals, you can look at what it does in their brains. It, it, it produces, it stimulates these very specific brain areas that release exactly that same chemical that is, uh, that is modulated by circulating the antidepressant you're taking. Yeah. Right, so there's a classic example of, of something that we're working on, trying to better understand the mechanism, um, but that basically is a retread of a very ancient uh, technique. And there's others that also hold promise that we're interested in looking at. That's really interesting because I'm I'm actually part Scandinavian, and uh-huh. in especially in like Finnish culture, which is where my uncle lives now, is absolutely normal to go and have a sauna every day. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't typically those nations, kind of Denmark, Sweden, Norway, and Finland. Obviously, there's a multitude of other factors affecting it, but they do typically top kind of happiness happiness indexes um so that so that's really fascinating and And you know there's 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 been a very large study of 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 uh, really a couple thousand men over a 30-year period in finland precisely because people use sauna so often and the the finding is that that um and only in finland could i say this but (laughs) they looked at men who use sauna four or more times a week (laughs) or less the people that used it essentially every day had a 30 to 40% reduction in death, 30 40% reduction in heart attacks, 30 40% reduction in dementia. Wow. So, isn't that amazing? So, yeah. so you know, this, 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 this connection between, and it's not just, you know, living out in the desert and kind of sweating it out every day. It's, it's not that. It's, there's something about the, 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 the phasic nature of it. You come into an environment that's extremely hot, you get this, you get this time-limited bang stimulation of these pathways, um, and it's good for your health, and it really looks like it's good for your mental health also. Does, and of course, oh, good. Does it have to be in, so specifically while I'm thinking of soreness, does it have to be in a situation where you are removed from kind of mobile phones and TVs and stuff, or does it work well, if you say I mean nobody I don't know do people bring their cell phones into the sauna certainly in our in our study we use this very fancy expensive hypothermia machine and yeah no, you're you're you you're taken off the grid but what was interesting in our study was we had a very nice what we call a sham condition a fake condition where people laid in the box for the same amount of time they got a little bit of heat um, and, and it turned out if they heated up a little bit they also started to get an antidepressant response but so we kind of adjusted we we addressed everything that you know coming into a novel procedure leaving your cell phone outside the door having all those expectations and that helped a little bit i mean people had a mild reduction in depression but it really looks like there's something specific about the heat and of course so I think that what, what, what it is, is that, you know, there's a lot of evidence that mammals in general, the, the, the need for mammals to maintain a constant internal body temperature, which, which uh, you know, you think about computers, uh, big computers have to have a controlled temperature. You, you, you can't have temperature fluctuations and, 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 and do cognitive uh, sort of tasks with any, with any accuracy. 
So the, it's, it's a lot of energy and very expensive to maintain this constant body temperature. So, so um, mammals in particular, but some reptiles too, have hit upon the fact that you can share body temperatures, they're called kleptothermy, where it literally means stealing body temperature. And, and a lot of mammals, especially in cold environments, will, will actually touch, be in physical proximity to each other as a way of reducing the metabolic costs of maintaining body temperature. Because of course, for most animals, uh, including humans before the modern era, th there wasn't a lot of energy to go around. I mean, if you gave energy to one thing, that took away energy from something else. Um, and so there's this idea that has been articulated by Jim Cohen and others that that human sociality may have partly evolved out of this this metabolic need, you know, to get close to people to to um, to to help regulate and reduce the cost of body temperature. And so out of that, you know. Uh, Human touch, which is warmth against the skin, is perceived as positive, of course, and, and as little as babies, as infants, that is a live or die thing. You know, if, if humans yeah. don't that, they, they don't make it right. So what I think these ancient practices tend to do is they tend to take that evolved signal. So the signal is warmth on the skin means that you are in contact, uh, especially episodic warmth on the skin, that you are in a socially supportive, connected, safe situation right that that's the evolutionary signal and 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 you should feel good if you get that signal because it means you're likely to survive and reproduce what the age of practice does what the sweat lodge does and what our modern hypothermia machine does is it takes that signal and and pushes it it, it supercharges it if you will and, and 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 really pushes the intensity of it and when you do that you 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 really induce these brain changes that seem to make people feel emotionally better yeah it's amazing so yeah. is that I've, I've read about a practice called tumo practice which i think oh, i think yes. you're quite interested in as well does that does that have a similar effect in terms of how people absolutely yeah so i started you know when, when i said i started my research career 20 years ago i actually started my research career to study tumo okay i i uh, I, have, I have this long connection with the tibetan buddhist world and I became fascinated with this practice, which is that these guys, and now we know women, would um, do this meditation technique that was specifically designed to raise their body temperature. Um, and and they they do this um, because that, that technique, um, at least by their reports, so reliably induces these euphoric states of mind that they consider it to be the absolute sort of cornerstone or foundational practice for all these higher tantric techniques, which which they would say are, are methods for trying to achieve enlightenment very rapidly. So Kumo involves a certain type of air in the, uh, the belly and then combining that with, um, with these visualization uh, practices where you visualize a flame right at your, your, your belly button basically that heats up your entire body. Now, it's more complicated than that, but yeah. that's sort of a quick description. And uh, 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 it was studied a little bit in the 80s, early 80s, by Herb Benson at Harvard, and then a bunch of stuff happened, and it sort of became impossible to study it. And I found it, I, I was, I we really tried, but it, it, the practitioners did not want to be studied. But, but in the last couple of years, a, a group of researchers actually went into Tibet proper and found a nunnery where the women were tumo experts and 
they did this really remarkable series of experiments where they showed that these women are able to really jack up their body temperature. They, they raise it about as high as, and some of them even higher than what we do with our with our hypothermia machine. Wow. What's interesting is the, the time course of the rise in body temperature in response to TUMO tracks along perfectly with the time course of the rise in body temperature when you're stuck in a hyperthermia machine. So yes, I think it's I think it's extremely relevant. That that is the ultimate example of an ancient practice supercharging something, right? So this link between thermoregulation and a sort of fever generation of body temperature and the induction of these altered states that are often quite euphoric. Uh, that 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 line of, of of sort of what humans have discovered, I think, reaches its zenith in TUMO, which is the most outrageous of all hyperthermic practices. Yeah. Now, there's you know there's this guy named Wim Hof who yeah um, yeah I've heard of him. Very interesting, the Iceman, right? Yeah. And he's got a method, and I know people that swear by it, and it involves things that are similar to TUMO. So TUMO is, has sort of made a semi entrance into the modern world as another ancient practice that's been adapted. Yeah, I've kind of read that um, that people can get raise their body temperatures enough to kind of dry wet towels from their backs and stuff. Um, Jeez, that's right. Yeah, um, yeah, in Tibet, this was the traditional. So they would have these these tumo contests. So the novices would train for a, a protracted period, and then they'd wait till the middle of winter, and they'd all show up in their sort of what I call their skivvies, basically, you know, nothing but a basically naked, right? And they would sit out in these unbelievably freezing temperatures and they would they would cut a hole in the ice and they would take these sheets and they would dip the sheets in the icy water and then they'd wrap them around their bodies. And whoever could dry the most sheets over the course of the night was considered to be the winner. That was the TUMO expert. <laughs> That's what really got me going on the study of TUMO was I was fascinated by the fact that within their own worldview, uh, the mark of success is not being an enlightened Buddha, it's drying sheets. <laughs> like, what the what does drying sheets have to do with the production of euphoric mental states? Right? <laughs> that question launched my entire research career. Wow. Actually. Yeah, it's really cool. So something else I've and there's oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, go on, go on. <laughs> no, I was gonna say and there's been some, you know, that's there's been some video footage that was gathered in the mid eighties showing these guys doing this sort of thing. So it does seem to be a true fact. Yeah. So another thing that I found particularly helpful for myself is uh, is mindfulness meditation. But mm -hmm. I'm quite aware that um, for some people it doesn't necessarily help and that the the research around it is... is um, as with anything that gets a bit popular, I think people try and jump on the bandwagon a bit. Um, and there's some quite poor research out there I've, I've read. Um, but how, how do you think something like mindfulness meditation can help with uh, a mental issue like depression? Um, and how, how does that work? And how strong is that research at the moment? Uh, you're right. Uh, so, I mean, this is one of my other sort of bailiwicks. So, I I, uh, I work in this area. I work more with compassion meditation than okay. mindfulness. But but I, I I all my colleagues here at Wisconsin are these sort of world famous mindfulness researchers. Um, 
Right. The, 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 many of the studies would not get you FDA approval, you know, Food and Drug Administration yeah. in the United States, right? They're, they're, they're smaller, they're weak, their study designs weaker. Uh, it's very, you can't blind the treatment. There are, though, some good studies. Um, and the place where mindfulness has shown the most consistent promise, I think, in the best studies, uh, is is in this thing called mindfulness-based cognitive therapy or MBT. Is that John Kabat-Zinn's kind of? Uh, no, that's MBSR. Okay. And there's a number of studies of MBSR too, and and there it's a, it's I, I, if you look at meta-analyses, there there's a signal there with MBSR, but it's 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 murkier. MBCT was created. Um, by by a couple of folks from the UK and, and some folks from Canada, and it combines mindfulness training with cognitive behavioral therapy, and it has been shown to prevent the relapse of people that have depression. Right, so you know people get depressed and then they, they get feeling better, and then if they learn this technique compared to not, it really looks like it protects them against them getting depressed again. I I think still that's probably the strongest uh, scientific data for mindfulness. What I think, the thing that struck me about meditation over all these years of being involved in this world is that mm, it's 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 not it's not something that works a little bit for everybody. It really seems to me to be something that some people find tremendously helpful, and and some people find it so helpful that it becomes the center of their lives, right? Yeah. Um, and then other people don't find it helpful at all, right? So like. Um, you know, you, you've got hay fever, right? You were telling me. Yeah. All right. So if you take, you know, if you take some antihistamine agent, you know, almost everybody that takes an antihistamine agent that has hay fever is going to get some relief. Some people may get more. Some people may get less. But, but you know, most people can say, oh, yeah, I, I see I took something. Uh, I don't think that meditation is like that. I, I think that it's, it's like a miracle drug for the right people and probably... Um, probably not of much use for other people, and then there's a minority of people that it actually hurts. Okay. Yeah, in, you know, in, there's some research on that. In what kind of way does is that? So first of all, is that the same? Is that a generalization for meditation as a whole, or can you see different results? Say if you're if you're using mindfulness meditation versus something like compassion meditation. Uh, I think it's I think it's as a whole. Okay. I, I, yeah, I think. And and by the way, just as an aside, we now have some really interesting evidence to suggest that the same thing's true for antidepressants. Oh wow. Twenty five percent of people that take antidepressants would actually do better if they took a placebo. Um, the antidepressant is not only not helping them, but it compared to what just taking a salt pill, it's actually making them worse. Wow. We saw the same thing in this study we did of this very novel. Um, anti-inflammatory agent. I think that that is a general rule, that anything that really helps some people likely is counterproductive in others. I, I can't prove that, it's yeah. principle, but it, it does seem to be fairly consistent. So, so yes, I think the same thing is true with meditation. So um, is there overlap between the people that don't respond to meditation and antidepressants, or is it is there a way you can can screen people for yeah. whether? Good question. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, nobody has ever done the study of looking to see whether there's an overlap between responding to meditation and antidepressants. Um, that is a that's a fascinating question. That would be a great study uh, to do. Uh, but as far as I know, nobody's ever done that. 
the, the search for what we call predictive biomarkers, meaning I want to look at Joe Blow before, you know, or Susie Smith, before they start whatever the intervention is, and I want to do something. I want to give them a questionnaire. I want to draw their blood. I want to do something that will tell me, yes, they should take this treatment. Or, you know, Bill should take treatment A, Joe should take treatment B, right? That, that is the holy grail of, of, of psychiatric research. And it has been thus far impossible to accomplish. Okay. Um, yeah, it's astounding. I mean, we just put in this huge grant uh, for meditation, and that's it was, it was sort of a big part of the component. I mean, everybody, we all want to find that. You know, don't bother to sign up for MBSR because I just did a blood test on you, and you you're not going to benefit. You know, yeah. Or, or or oh my God, you're you're missing the opportunity of lifetime. You were born to meditate, right? No, uh, unfortunately, that has turned out to be unbelievably difficult. To, yeah. Uh, that's fascinating. Yeah, it's so really interesting. Are there any other kind of, if you're fairly resistant to both meditation and antidepressants, is there any other research to suggest other things? Oh yes, uh, oh yes, absolutely. So let's, I mean, because I know you, you know people are going to listen to this, and if some of them have depression and yeah. are struggling, either they're not getting an adequate response to an antidepressant, or they're getting a response but they're having a lot of side effects. Or they're getting a response, but they feel emotionally kind of numb. Yeah. And it, that too. Um, uh, let me let me let me talk through where you can go sure. from there. Um, okay. So the first thing you could do actually is is try another antidepressant. It, it for reasons that nobody understands. I think it, it turns out that even closely related antidepressants, ones that have quote the same mechanism of action, uh, people respond very differently. Different classes of medications have different side effects, you know, um, and and so within the world of antidepressants, um, you know, if you fail a first antidepressant, th there's still a pretty good chance that you're going to respond to a second one. Now, now when you get down to failing three or four of them, then then the odds of responding to the next one have dropped fairly considerably, right? But you know, the best by far, the best documented treatment. For depression that's not an antidepressant that's not uh, a, a pill or you know something like that is psychotherapy okay and um, psychotherapy in studies psychotherapy is as effective as medications now you know psychotherapy uh, depends on the psychotherapist I mean there's it's not something that you can you know standardize and put into a pill yeah so so I always tell people you know if you're in therapy and it is not if it's not really grabbed you and you don't feel like like things are happening, and you've been doing it for a while. You need to switch therapists. It's like switching medications. Yeah, people stay with the same therapist. They talk about the same boring stuff. And so I, 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 I just in the last year, which has been kind of a difficult year for me. I, I, there's a therapist in town here who I I went to just for a few sessions. The woman is so talented, it's so outrageously talented, that it it, it was massively for me and I, I, I some of my colleagues go to her and sort of the same thing right well unfortunately you know it's kind of hard to bottle her yeah you know? but the point this is the point for people that are listening um, therapy has a lot to do with the insight and support and nature of the therapist and if and the, 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 how well you fit with that particular therapist so you know one size does not fit all and so if you tried therapy but you know it didn't do much for you it, 
it's just as likely that you had a wrong fit or a wrong therapist as as that you are resistant to therapy. Yeah. So I've never quite said this so clearly, but this is a really important point. So that's therapy. Okay. Now there are um, in the U.S. We if people are desperately depressed, I mean, really, where it's like where it's become like an illness, you know, where you're just incapacitated and even if something good happens to you, you just can't get it right. You're just, your brain has gone off into a bad pattern. It's sort of stuck there. Um, there are things that we do that sometimes help people that fail antidepressants. And a newer one is this thing called transcranial magnetic stimulation, which involves a magnet that they put on the head that sends little electric pulses into the brain. That could be very helpful for people. Um, and then there's an old treatment that has a really bad reputation, I think mostly unfairly called electric shock therapy or ECT. Okay. That also works really, man, I mean, when people are at their wit's end, I have seen that pull people back from the brink hundreds and hundreds of times over the years. Now, there are also some very interesting ancient practices that are showing promise for the treatment of depression. We talked about one, our work with hyperthermia. Um, that is not... FDA approved, it's not approved in the UK, you know, by the MHRA or what, whoever it is that, that approves things over there. But saunas have existed forever. And if you're somebody that really feels better after you go into a sauna, you should make it part of your life because we now have evidence that it does have antidepressant properties. There is good evidence that um, exercise can have powerful antidepressant effects. Some people more than others. But in groups of people, you know, aerobic exercise, but also strength training. Um, I, I myself prefer aerobic exercise. Not only acutely, immediately lifts the mood, but you have to do it regularly, and you have to do it rigorously. I mean, you, you know, you, you got to kind of get your heart rate up. Yeah, I think but, for me, exercise is a big, big one. Um, yeah. But do you think, with exercise, do you think it's uh, more the social interaction that you get with it if you're playing like a team sport or actually the kind of endorphin rush you get when you've been out on a run by yourself right i think it's it's i think that at its core it is the biochemical effect of the exercise itself right and i say this because we know that going out for a run by yourself can also make you feel better but but you know if you if you had this idea about these ancient signals that humans need to feel good we could talk all day this is a fascination of mine about why running what's the signal to the brain that comes out of running that makes people feel good and there's a whole story there but we also know that being part of a team being part of a tribe um, working together with a group of people that you know and trust that is that is maybe the all-time most powerful antidepressant signal you can get from the world so clearly you know if you can combine uh, if you can combine the aerobic workout which provides the biochemical effect with the social connection um, that's going to be optimally effective. Um, but having said that, you know, it's interesting. Like I, 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 I am very bad at sports, and I came from a very sports frenzied part of the United States. So you know, I was always the last kid picked, uh, and so for me, sports have this sort of uh, patina of pain from my childhood. So I'm not a big sports person, but oh my goodness, you know, I, I mean, every once in a while, I will go on an antidepressant, uh, but when I am not. I crave running, and I crave okay. it by myself, and I crave it because it has an antidepressant effect. There's no doubt yeah. about it. That's right? amazing, yeah. Yeah, so there's running. Now, another one that I am very interested in that has not been rigorously studied in depression uh, is fasting. There is some very interesting evidence 
that fasting and there's different types of fasting and fasting for different periods and there's complexities there but there there is a database suggesting that that voluntarily not eating for a stretch of time uh enhances your mood it makes you feel better um is there any what's the kind of that's yeah it's interesting you could say that because um it's ramadan at the moment as we're speaking and um and last time i'm quite a big cricket fan and the last time uh pakistan came to play uh in the english summer it was actually during ramadan and two of the players that were doing the you know hardcore ramadan where they don't um they don't break their fasts even when they're top level sportsmen they performed absolutely unbelievably and i don't know how much that ties to their mental state but it's a really interesting thing that that fasting could improve your mental state um but i'm wondering how how that would kind of work it does it does improve your mental state uh and it probably improves your physical state up to a point and and i mean we don't know i we don't know the answer to that but my favorite theory is that remember so across evolutionary time you know wasting energy is a bad idea in general it, it, and and certainly it was a bad idea for humans that lived in hunter-gatherer times so um, they weren't out running most of the time most most groups were not out running races just for the heck of it um, they tended to become active when they needed food right so uh, in fact there's this fascinating evidence that, that that exercise produces more dopamine in the brain gives a bigger jolt when you're fasted because you evolved to exercise at that time period because you gotta you gotta go out and and either forage or I, I think many of us increasingly think uh, what would go out in what's called persistent hunt. So in, in the areas of Africa where humans evolved and where it's very hot, especially at the midday, um, there's there's this fascinating evidence that humans first hunted large animals which provided enough calories for, for this sort of brain expansion. They, they first hunted large animals by running them to death, uh, essentially by running them to the point where they overheated and died. So here we're back to thermoregulation, yeah. right? Humans are the only animals that can so effectively thermoregulate uh, by far. There's nothing like us. And, and humans can run down a gazelle to keep the gazelle moving because the gazelle will overheat and have a heat stroke and die. So you see, <laughs> this is what I love about these ancient practices. They all begin to fit into each other, right? Yeah. Um, and of course, people did this in groups, so there was all this sort of group element. It was like the initial team sport was running for your dinner. <laughs> so you did those things, of course. You didn't do those things after you just killed the water buffalo and it gorged yourself, right? And so th- th- there's there, there's some good evolutionary reasons, I think a number of us think, why it is that, that not fasting where you're starving and you don't have the energy, but the kind of fasting at Ramadan where it's intermittent fasting, you know? Um, yeah, it's going to sharpen your mind. It's going to, you know, activate your ability to exercise, um, and you're going to get more of a, a of a emotional kick from it. Um, gosh, just, this stuff just fascinates the heck out of me, right? Yeah. So, um, the, the, just to say, I think the kind of fasting that I like personally is intermittent fasting, and, and I can't, I don't have the willpower to always do this. Although, I sure feel better when I do. Um, um, there's various kind of schedules, but one that works well is just two or three days a week not to eat um, or to eat less than 500 calories, to okay. eat one light thing a day, right? And the thing that works best for me when, I, when I've when i got the willpower to do it is to to eat lunch and then not eat again until the next lunch, 
on that day and then eat normally to kind of lunch and dinner the day after and then have the lunch and then do it again right um it, 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 the way my body and brain works if i do that i notice an appreciable improvement in my mood it's really quite striking right that's so have you had to have you did the first time the first few times you did that did you feel i don't know slightly lethargic and, and low on energy uh, or was it a kind of instant um, no, impact? No, when you first do it, we, what, yeah, and, and this is like meditation. Not everybody can easily do this. Um, uh, so my partner, um, Christine, she's able, it, she, she, she's a one meal a day person. She does it great. It makes her feel great. But, but other people I've worked with, they start getting a headache. And in studies, what they find in general is if you're going to fast for a longer period, like there's these studies where they put people in a metabolic uh, room and they fast them for three days. Let's say they give them water, but they give them other stuff. Most people feel pretty crappy by the end of the first day, but by the second day and by the third day, people no longer feel crappy. They, they, they begin to feel this sort of light euphoric thing. Now, and of course, this can be bent to the bad. I mean, something like this probably contributes to anorexia nervosa, right? Yeah. Where there's a little bit of data on that. So it's like all these things that can be done badly. But yes, if you're going to do this, uh, it, it, it takes a little bit of a sacrifice. You know, I, I, I am better. What I often end up doing is eating at night, and then I won't eat. I'll go from dinner to dinner. Now, I, 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 that does not work as well for me, and it's almost certainly not as healthy. Um, but I, I, at night, I, I, I lose the emotional battle. I crave eating something. <laughs> I kind of, you know, so, you know, we all got to find what we can do. But, but you know, one could imagine a an, an ancient practices regimen for treating depression or, or sort of keeping depression at bay that would involve something like intermittent fasting. Um, combined with aerobic exercise and maybe especially on the day that you're fasting to try to tap into that evolved interconnection um and then you know adding to that you know like rigorous use of a sauna yeah. um right that would be and then and then we get to what a lot of my current work is involved with um which is the potential that another very widespread ancient practice may indeed have very powerful antidepressant effects. And this is the use of psychedelic medicines okay. to treat depression. Um, and, you know, this has become, I mean, this whole field has gone from sort of being kind of considered weird old hippie stuff to being hugely in the mainstream uh, recently. Um, uh, it, it's just in the, in, the, in the few years that I've been working in this area, I've seen this utter transformation of how people are perceiving it. Now, of course, people are hoping that it'll solve all the world's problems, which is definitely not true. <laughs> but they do, psychedelic agents um, like psilocybin, uh, uh, and they're a lot like LSD. That's the famous one. Yeah. You know, turns out that there are these studies showing that if you give depressed people um, one treatment with these agents, it, it, it not in everybody, um, but in but in general, it produces these improvements in depression that can be quite striking and that can last for extended periods. There's two studies that were done uh, in the United States, and one was done at Imperial College London, in the UK, um, at, at showing the same thing basically that, that there seems to be huge promise here when these agents are deployed in a very careful, clinical, very supportive setting. Yeah. Uh, with with sort of therapy before and after. 
that they can really be remarkably effective. There's another one called MDMA, it, known on the street as ecstasy. It, you know, it was a big rave drug in, in both the UK and the United States. It's still used for that, but in the 90s especially. Um, we have a sister organization um, that it has FDA approval to do these very large-scale studies to see whether that might be a very effective and long-term benefit treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder. So, you know, the use of psychedelic agents is profoundly widespread in indigenous groups yeah. um, and probably contributed to some of the mystery cults of the ancient world, like the Elysian Mysteries. So here's another example of something that, that is ancient, that has a huge effect, that taps into this evolved human capacity to have these profound uh, experiences where life seems to be very meaningful and things seem to be interconnected and you know, people often come away from these experiences when they work with this certainty that that life is somehow meaningful and eternal. And it's fascinating, right? So, uh, much of my work is involved with um, uh, the the unbelievable ugh, details, and it's it's anything but mystical. But developing studies that, if they were positive, might lead to FDA approval for yeah. this agent, right? So those, those, those things are not, the, you know, everything else I named are things that one can do on a regular basis. The psychedelics, I don't recommend those for home use yet. Um, okay. <laughs> not at that point. But, but on the far future horizon, I mean, far future being five or six years probably, um, we may see that they enter into standard treatment and they will be an absolutely novel way. So very ancient. is it the same case that they would work on certain demographics but not others and a similar thing to the kind of thing you said with antidepressants that actually if it's not screened properly they may have a negative effect on some people it's but an outrageously yes. positive impact on other people right um, yes that, that's going to be true now, the demographics are really fascinating. Um, there is a researcher somewhere in the world who is doing a study in uh, very impoverished um, uh, black folks uh, who are struggling with a horrible substance abuse addiction. These, most of these people are living on the streets. The study isn't finished, but they've, they've sort of looked at some of the data halfway in, and the results are astounding. They're having huge, huge positive effects. So these are, you know, if you think about a demographic that is we don't think of when we think about, say, LSD, um, you know, homeless uh, black folks that are addicted to bad drugs, uh, it, this this study, if it, if, it, if it washes out that way, if, it, if at the end of the day that is what is found, that will forever put, I think, to rest the idea, uh, certainly in America, I think there's this idea that, that these, these are sort of, you know, they're being taken a lot in Silicon Valley, they're kind of, you know, kind of middle-class white people drugs. So no, I do not think demographics are going to play into it. I think, in fact, if anything, we might find larger effects in groups that, that we would never imagine uh, would benefit. But, uh, you know, can we tell ahead of time who is likely to benefit from these things? There, there's a little bit of a suggestion from one study, or maybe two, that people that are more open in their personality, meaning that they're more open to new ideas, they're not as rigid, they, they, they can see the black and the white, and they see things as gray. They've got sort of more of an open, accepting attitude towards life. They seem to have better experiences with these agents. And those experiences in other studies seem to connect with the antidepressant response. So 
maybe there's a little suggestion there that certain personality traits make a person more or less likely to benefit from these agents. Um, although that has not been firmly established in, uh, in the treatment of depression. Um, it, it's been shown in many studies that the type of experience one has uh, under the acute influence of a psychedelic predicts longer term outcomes. You can see that with depression, you can see it with anxiety, you can see it with quitting smoking, which is something else people looked at. Um, and there, it, it really looks like people that have these sort of mystical experiences where they, they feel at one with the universe, where they feel that there's a great deal of meaning in life. Um, the more that happens, it seems like the better of an antidepressant people, response people get down the road. That, that we do seem to know, um, which is really interesting. It's very different, right? I mean, nobody that takes a regular antidepressant says, oh, you know, oh my goodness, you know, the experience I had just now when I swallowed the sertraline pill has changed my life. Yeah, I've not had that experience. Right? No, no, neither has anybody else. Right? So the, this psychedelics are an utterly novel potential way of treating depression. Uh, if indeed really larger rigorous studies um, repeat what the first studies have shown. Uh, yeah. It's really fascinating. Is it just just depression? Yeah, I know you mentioned PTSD as well, but is that uh, where the main no, research no, line is? No, it's not to just depression. So, you know, it turns out that in the 50s and 60s, uh, there were something like a thousand studies were done of psychedelics for all sorts of things. Now, they, the studies were not as rigorous. As, uh, they wouldn't pass muster nowadays. But the things that were looked at most often in the early days were alcoholism. Um, there, there, it turns out that that a lot of people seem to quit drinking after having a psychedelic experience if it was done in a very therapeutic setting. There are ongoing studies. There's a study at NYU that's being run by Michael Bogenschutz, a, a, a randomized, very rigorous study looking at psilocybin for the treatment of alcoholism. They give they give the people a couple of doses of psilocybin over a few week period. Um, there are studies looking at psilocybin for smoking cessation. Um, and uh, there are some early studies, they're small studies, but suggesting that, that psilocybin may really help people quit smoking. There's a study being run by Peter Hendricks um, down in Birmingham, Alabama, looking at uh, psilocybin for the treatment of, of cocaine uh, addiction. Um, there are the, the, the two studies, there are two studies that were done in people that had cancer and clinically significant depression and anxiety and in those studies, anxiety also got significantly better. If anything, it got better than the depression. So it, it looks like these agents have promise for anxiety. And then there's one small study from an old colleague of mine, Francisco Moreno. He and I were together at University of Arizona. Small study, but he gave it to people with obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD, and also showed an immediate improvement in their symptoms. And that was something people looked at in the 1960s also, and, and there were some positive studies. So if you combine that, MDMA is not, it's not a classic psychedelic, but it definitely is a mind-altering medicine. And it's the one they're looking at for PTSD. So, you know, there's a wide range of conditions that these agents might be beneficial for, and that I think over the next decade they'll be studied for. That's really fascinating. So is it just a case of getting more rigorous research out there? Um, Yes, yeah. that's exactly what it's a case of, right? Okay. Rigorous, large-scale, rigorous studies that are done the way that a big pharmaceutical company would do their studies, right? And I, I tell you, you know, whatever we want to say about antidepressants, and, you know, I mean, antidepressants, 
save many people's lives and and and, and given people their life back. They're, they're, you know, I, I'm a I'm an antidepressant doc, so it's kind of ironic that I spend my research life trying to supplant them. <laughs> um, but but one thing that that this work with psilocybin has taught me is that the rigor, the the difficulties of doing the types of studies that these big pharmaceutical companies do is really impressive. Man, yeah. it's you know, meditation research, for example, is far shoddier than pharmaceutical research in terms of the study designs, of the rigor, of how they do their statistical analyses. And that's the rigor that we have to bring to the study of psychedelics. Yeah. So one thing that probably doesn't need as much rigor in the research is um, the effect of being in nature that can have on on your mental health. So I've I really noticed that when I'm somewhere that's kind of stunningly beautiful or that has amazing views, you know, it gives you a much greater perspective and you're almost able to put your issues, plant them somewhere in the back because you're just looking at something amazing. So I don't know if that's a uh, a particularly relevant or true... Oh, it is. Um, oh, it is, right? So, you know, and this taps into another ancient... At least the argument would go. This taps into another ancient human evolved need, um, which, which um, you know, has been called biophilia, right? That because, that because humans evolved within the context of of nature, we evolved a a need for that signaling, and that certain types of natural environments um, are in fact the most mood elevating, and you know, the the, the world leader here is Japan. Japan yeah. has this whole bunch of research they call it forest bathing and it doesn't necessarily mean they jump in the creek they, mm. they kind of metaphorically but they have these whole programs where they take people out to the forest and you know they, there's a great study where they did cognitive behavioral therapy they half the half the patients got cognitive behavioral therapy like in an office and half got cognitive behavioral therapy in the forest and they got much bigger effects when they did therapy in the forest right so um, absolutely um, I, there is very credible evidence that um, that getting into nature um, has antidepressant effects, and I and, and I think it's primarily probably what you're describing is that it, you know, it either certain natural vistas give one a sense of of smallness that's actually comforting, like you know the whole world is not on your shoulders, you're you're part of a much much larger beautiful scene. I think you know then being around living things or being in natural environments it just it, it triggers in humans a sense of unity it's like what psychedelics do a little bit the unity of nature right that there's some sort of larger pattern a larger plan or you know that and, and that that feeling when it's induced in a human being uh, is powerfully antidepressant um, it just is right and so um, yeah, absolutely. That's another thing that if, if a person can avail themselves of it. And again, some people are going to be much more yeah. um, responsive to that than others, right? I mean, there's some people you could take them to the most beautiful place in the world and they'd be like, uh, duh. You know, <laughs> Check my but, phone. <laughs> but, yeah. but for people that, that this is a one of my most strong things. I'm very much of a, a, a nature kind of uh, landscapey kind of person it's one of my great hobbies and so I, I'm like you I, I in fact I was up in in northern Michigan um, two days ago and 
out in exactly the kind of environment you're talking about with this huge vista of Lake Superior. And I had exactly the kind of response you're talking about. Yeah. Really mood elevating. It's amazing. It's interesting you said Japan as well, because I think, I think actually in Scandinavia as well, there's a real, um, I don't know if it's still the case now, but they used to have a summer holiday period of four weeks in August, which almost everyone took. And they'd go to their summer houses, which were by a lake, by the sea, in these beautiful surroundings with the pine forest. And I think in... Uh, Scandinavian culture it might not be the same now but there is a real link back to nature and a care for the environment um, which probably contributes to these increased levels of happiness that we see in those in those nations I I think that's yes I, I think that is absolutely correct yeah so just to just to kind of tie things up what we ask everyone is what their top tip would be for maintaining good mental mental balance. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and and we've we've gone over much of it, but you know the 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 strongest things one can do to maintain mental balance are work on having the the best sort of social connection you can, meaning that you have people that you can be open and honest with that understand you as you are, that you don't have to put up a fake front with. Be interdigitated with uh, a group of people that are doing something productive in the world that you believe is important and meaningful. Minimize uh, hostile, negative interactions uh, with people. Try to minimize situations where you feel alienated and lonely and, and you know, sort of cut off or, you know, sort of inferior to other people. The, these these, these interpersonal things are probably the primary driver of mental unwellness for most humans because humans are an astoundingly social species. We, we live for each other in ways that are mind-boggling once you see it. Yeah. That's one domain. The second domain is to maintain physical health because there is no doubt that the body drives the brain and tells the brain how to feel in very important ways. So I often tell people everything you would do to maintain optimal cardiac or heart health if you did those, you would also maintain optimal mental health. And that includes right diet, right exercise, right sleep, um, those sorts of things. Um, and then um, I think that if one suffers with depression or anxiety or one of these conditions, um, the most important thing one can do is, is not put one's hand in the sand, but really try to address it and treat it. And what treating it means uh, has shifted a great deal uh, for me over the last, you know, seven or eight years because of the work I've done and because of the work other people have done. You know, I think if your world is coming apart, it's well worth exploring at least time-limited use of things like antidepressants. I've come to think that if you can do it via psychotherapy, that's probably even healthier. And then there are all these things that we can do that we've talked about that are that are either available now or that are on the horizon um, that also seem to have these, you know, antidepressant effects and that, you know, that we should utilize them if we can. So where can we find out about more about what current research projects, what future research, what cool stuff you're doing? Um, I, I have a website, Raison Research, um, if you Google in those words, you'll find the website. Um, another place you can follow me is on the website for USONA Institute, U-S-O-N-A Institute. 
Um, uh, you can also follow me uh, if you just Google me at the University of Wisconsin, uh, Madison. Um, I'm writing a book on some of these ideas we're talking about. Books take a while, but people keep their eye on it. Um, someday, hopefully, in the next couple of years, all of this will be in print. So an, an academic book or more? No, no, I've written an academic book. So, so we, along with my buddy and colleague, Vladimir Malatek, I've written a book called The New Mind-Body Science of Depression, which came out about a year ago now. It's, it's a massive book. Uh, parts of it are very, very dense. Parts of it are, are readable if you're not a specialist. But no, okay. I, I'm, I'm working on a lay public book. I really want to try to get these ideas out to, to the you know, folks that don't have specialty training in these areas. Awesome. Thank you very much, Chuck Raisin. Thank you, Harry. It's nice talking to you. Hi guys, just a quick reminder that we aren't trained psychologists or psychiatrists or therapists and if you're having your own problems, don't hesitate to go and see your GP or use the services of charities like Mind or Calm or anything like that. Cheers.